0: OK, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to continue uh, with uh, the Garden of Eden and and trying to better understand exactly what went wrong. And for me, it's um, it's so it's so central and it's so exciting because it's really like a um, a laboratory, if you will, uh, of the human condition. You know, in, in any laboratory, conditions have to be absolutely sterile. Because if, if there's outside um, bacteria or whatever it is, then you can't, you don't know if, whether what you're looking at exactly is the thing itself or if it's an outside influence. So everything has to be really clean, you know. Everyone wears the masks and the gloves, and then sometimes they put their hands in those giant contraptions inside the, the glass boxes, you know. That's also that you've got a very sterile, pure environment. So for me, that's what the understanding the, um the Garden of Eden is like, because throughout history, the more, the more complicated life gets and the more involved history gets, you keep on throwing extra ingredients into the pot, so to speak. And so now, okay, well, I had to fix that, but now there's this thing that's thrown that off and... And I did kind of fix it, but now there's this other thing. So all of a sudden it keeps on um, transforming in front of your eyes, and it's not exactly clear what it is exactly that needs to be fixed, because you don't know what the thing is exactly. What's so awesome about studying um, the Garden of Eden is that it is absolutely a sterile environment, because everything was absolutely pure at that point. And so when you look at the mistake that was made, you can say, OK, well, this is the core aspect of our humanity that needs to be addressed. And so that's why I think it's such a valuable um, and endlessly fascinating source of study, but also very practical and very helpful. All right. So so we've been going through a lot of different ideas. And, and um, if you um, if you're just sort of listening to this tape for the first time, I, I, I'd recommend there, there are a few other tapes um, I think it's called Our First Mistake. That's one to listen to. And even before that one, I called it the, um, the DNA of seduction, the snake and Eve. So this is really part three of this kind of overview of, of the Garden of Eden. Um, what I want to discuss, I want to discuss a few points today. Um, but uh, I want to begin with with a question, which is, how is it? You see. You see. Before before we ate from the tree, there was another mistake that was made in the Garden of Eden. Actually, there were really there were really two mistakes. Um, the the sun and the moon were originally the same size, and then the moon complained: Is it proper for two heads to fit and share the same crown, meaning the sky? And um, Hashem said to the moon, "You're right. So make yourself small, right?" Which was likely not the answer the moon was looking for. <laughs> and I always like to say in Rabbi Wein's name that, that every time a person looks at the moon, it's like sort of a reminder to be humble, you know. So, um, but but more uh, more central to what we're talking about right now, there was a second mistake, which is not as widely discussed, um, which is the the rebellion, quote-unquote, of, of the fruit trees. and And what happened there? So, if you look at the language of the Torah, Hashem says, Hashem commands that there should be, listen very carefully to these words, fruit trees bearing fruit. And then if you look a couple of lines later, Um, Hashem says, what came into being, and it says, trees bearing fruit. So, let's just review the language again. Hashem commanded that there should be fruit trees bearing fruit, and what came into being were trees bearing fruit. So, what happened to the fruit tree part, and what does that mean? So, the rabbis understand it in a very, very amazing way which is that the bark of the tree was supposed to taste like fruit. There were supposed to be fruit trees bearing fruit. That the tree itself was going to be like fruit. But that the tree, somehow, however we're to understand it, and we're going to offer an explanation in a moment, that the fruit tree itself rebelled. And it said something like, I'll be eaten alive. If If I'm... If I show who I really am, my goodness, on the outside, I'll be completely consumed. I won't exist anymore. So again, this is the concept of a, a barrier being put up, separating the the inside, the essence of a person, if you will, since people are compared to trees um, by the Torah, and, and one's outside. And so... And so you have this this rebellion, if you will, by the fruit trees. Before we do what? Before we make a mistake with what? A fruit tree. Now, I haven't seen this connection made before. The fact that our downfall um, was connected to the source of something that had already, in a sense, rebelled against Hashem. There has to be a very strong connection between these two things. Yeah. What is the connection? So I would like to offer an analysis on this. Um, so, so, so let's begin with the assumption that a fruit tree doesn't have free choice and can't rebel against Hashem. So if that's the case, then what, what is this quote-unquote rebellion? What are the rabbis trying to teach us happened here? What, what, what does this mean? Okay, so so with that as a background, let's jump now to Adam and Chava, to Adam and Eve eating from the tree itself. And I'd like to learn this now, according to the Ramchal in in his book Das Funos*. And um, his understanding gives us a a, a very very deep see. See, let me just digress for one moment. One another reason why I uh, really love um, studying Gan Eden um, and Adam and Chava is because is because the the secular world um, sees the story of Adam and Eve, especially in the age of um, evolution, where now people are. S- Increasingly celebrating Jar- Charles Darwin's birthday, I don't know if you've noticed this, that this is now becoming a a, a widespread um, source of a sort of an international holiday, his birth. I, I, I think that's interesting for the reason that it, it shows on the, the zeitgeist. In other words, what people, how people are feeling and, and, and how people feel. Um, it's... um. The Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve are are, are sort of looked at as as a a, a classic uh, case in point of the quote unquote storybook mythology, if you will, of of the Bible. Quote unquote. You know, Reb, Reb Shlomo always said, "Don't call it the Bible; call it the Torah." It made a very big impression on me when he said that. It's the Torah, you know. So so it's like when. People have no idea how deep, how incredibly deep the insights and the understanding of human nature and the human condition is if you study the Garden of Eden and Adam and Chava and, and what the snake was and what the fruit was and everything like this. They, they have no concept of the depth of the study there. So, so anyway... God willing, one day we'll, we'll tie all these things together, and 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 maybe people will understand the Torah in a in a in a more uh, meaningful way, um, or will be a, a gateway or an, or an opportunity um, to do so. So the Ramchal says the following: If you, he says, you know, in the Torah it says that Chava looked at the fruit and it says that the fruit looked really good. And it even uses the word, a derivative of the word Taiva. Taiva means lust, actually. That she had a lust for the fruit. So that means it looked really, really good. Okay? It didn't just look good. It looked really good. Okay, so, so Hashem had told her earlier, or through Adam, Adam had said, That if you eat from the tree, if you eat from this tree, this particular tree, you're going to die. So, so the snake says to Chava, "You you know what? God doesn't want you to eat from the tree, because if you eat from the tree, you're going to become like God. Your eyes are going to become opened. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to explore what that means in a moment. Your eyes will be open and you're going to become like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. So now, according to the Ramchal, Chava has this very amazing question put before her, which is the following If this fruit is bad, why does it look so good? <laughs> If this thing is supposed to kill me, how can it kill me when it looks so good? Something's wrong here. And how many of us can identify again to show you how deep and how relatable all these things are? Every single one of us can relate to this type of situation. You know, I'll give us the, the most innocent example of this. You see a slice of cake and you're on a diet. Okay, that's the most innocent version of this, okay? <laughs> um, so, so, so now the next question comes. Well, it must be, and now I'm telling you what the Ramchal is saying. This has all been the Ramchal but in his words now, that there must be shte reshuyos. This means basically two powers. So let's work this through. If Hashem says this fruit is no good and it looks good, that's impossible. If Hashem is the only power and He says it's no good, it should look bad. If he says it's no good and it looks good, there must be another power out there. And that power is making it look good. And now the snake is saying, if you eat, you're going to become godlike too. So, you know, only half jokingly, if there's already two powers, right, why shouldn't I also join the board of directors? Why not? Why not? So, seen in this way, seen in this way, it would appear that the test brought, because remember, the, the, the snake was not a free agent. Everything ultimately is coming from Hashem. And to put ourselves and our lives, you know, to directly relate, just what, is, what do we have to fix? What is our challenge? Um, Our test then, it would seem based on this, is is to understand that there is only one power in the world informing everything. Even though it would seem that there are independent sources of power all over the place. You see, Rebbe Nachman says something so significant. This is really so important. We have to get this into our absolute bones. The Torah doesn't repeat itself. We know that every single letter, even if there's an additional letter, we have to understand why it's there. If there's a missing letter in a word, if it's spelled completely in another sport, why here is a letter missing or why is it added? Like every single, the crowns of the letters themselves are of utmost significance. Everything. So if you have a mitzvah, certainly each mitzvah is individual and important and there's no repetition. So we have a mitzvah that there's only one, one God, Right? Now we have another mitzvah. Now, think about it for a moment. It sounds like this mitzvah is repetitive. And it's not. This other mitzvah is don't believe in other gods. Well, wait a second. If you just said to believe in one god, what does it mean don't believe in other gods? Because a person is capable of believing that there's one god and simultaneously saying, but there are also other powers. And we do it all the time. We do it all the time. We believe in God while simultaneously ascribing power to people and things that they do not have. So Hashem gives us the ultimate fixing with this mitzvah and says, don't do that either. There's one God and there's no other gods. You have to understand, when we, in in Torah, in Judaism, when we say that there's one God, we're not saying our God is stronger, the God of Israel, is stronger than your religion's God. Our God can beat your God. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, our God is God, and there is no other God. There are no other powers. A very, it's a very radical, this is a very radical statement. If you, want to, if you want reason number 114 why Jews have been on the hunt, or why Jews have been hunted throughout, throughout the millennium. Because we're saying something absolutely revolutionary. We're saying there is only one power in the world. But you know, it's interesting because as science evolves, science is catching up with Torah. Because science is keep, keeps on driving toward relentlessly toward a unified field theory. Which is that there's one, one overarching system. And that's, that's all there is, which is what we've been saying forever, since the beginning of time. So, so now the test, the test was, is Chava, is Chava going to be deceived in this way or not? And of course, we have to understand that this was not just a simple challenge. You know? that this was a, a, a massive test. It's a massive, massive, massive test that Adam and Chava were given. And ultimately, they, they fell prey, that they weren't able to see beyond the, the illusion of another power, even though their environment seemed to contradict them. They weren't able to get past that. And so they fell prey to this idea that there was more than one power. Now, with that in mind, I would like to connect it to what we discussed earlier and to give, a, um, to give an explanation of the rebellion of the fruit tree itself. So, so now, it all fits together, I think, very nicely. The fruit tree represents nature. It's, 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 it stands for nature. okay. And so what does it mean? Does a fruit tree have free choice that it can go against the command of Hashem. So, on a deep level, what we're saying is the following. That, no, it can't rebel against Hashem. It doesn't have free choice. But nature itself, by deviating, or by seeming to deviate from the word of Hashem, nature itself appeared as an independent power. That's what it means that the fruit tree rebelled against Hashem that nature itself seemed to be a power independent of God. And so now it makes sense that since the test was, is there just one power in the world? Or more than one power in the world? It makes sense that the test came through a fruit tree. Because the fruit tree stood for this illusion that nature is in itself a separate power or an independent power. Okay, hopefully hopefully, all that makes sense. Now, now, let's go further. You know, how do you get, what, what was the result now? What was the result from eating from the tree? So we said um, we said in the previous talk, I'm, I'm forgetting whether this was the Shalah or Rabbeinu Bachaya. That after they ate, what happened was, it, Adam and Chava were, were capable of seeing eternity. In other words, not just this world, but the next world as well. Um, and what happened was, there was this, um, there was this garment of ore. It's called a garment of skin that Hashem clothed them with a garment of skin, cutness or. But this word or, significantly, and you'll see there are endless depths to this. This word or is spelled with an ayin, which means skin. So it's often translated as leather garments or something like this. Hashem clothed, clothed them because they were hiding, they were naked in the, in the garden. Okay, we'll, we'll explain that in a moment. God willing. So now we're moving into the Sfa Semis right now. And uh, if you want to see this, uh, it's Parshas uh, Vayera and it's the year Tes Reish uh, Mem um, Aleph. I'm going to put it in my words um, but, but you can see it there. So, so, interestingly, interestingly, a a veil, a curtain, a barrier However you want to say it, a garment, however you want to say it, um, a, a misplaced perception of physicality, of materialism, all these, are, all these expressions are accurate in their own way, got put up so that we couldn't see eternity anymore. There was now a blockage. We just saw this world. We had, a, we had an out-of-whack understanding of our own physicality as it is relative to our soul's. Um, and now we, now God puts this covering on us. Now, let's put it in the most simple way. Why are, why are Adam and Chava hiding behind the bush? Because they're naked, and they're aware of their nakedness. And so if, you know, there's a halacha, basically, um, according to um, the way we conduct ourselves in the Torah, if you want to pray, um, You've got to put some clothes on. That's just kind of some just a basic mode of deriharitz of proper respect. Okay? You have to clothe yourself. Okay. So so Adam and Chava are are naked and they're aware of their nakedness and God is talking to them. So why are they hiding? Because you know you know, they're at that moment. Talking to God, they need some clothes. So, God, as a chesed, right, he, he clothes them. Okay, that's the, that's the most so that they can talk to God and be in an appropriate uh, mode of conduct. Okay, that's the simplest way to understand that. That's the simplest level. But we said that this idea of ore with an iron again, this, this idea of skin that got put on them, is very far reaching. That Adam and Chava were like, like orbs of light, almost. And that the skin that got put on them is, is, is physicality itself. Or, to understand it as this, this blockage, if you will, where they couldn't quite see eternity anymore. They just That light got blocked, and they just saw this world now, and they just saw their own physicality. But according to the Sfasemes, it was a great chesed, a great kindness that Hashem did for them. Because basically, think of this just in terms of energy right now. When Hashem was relating to them in this pre-eating from, pre-skin, pre ore with an uh mode, before eating from the tree, that they couldn't handle that intense flood of energy. And that basically... They got short-circuited. They got burnt out. So what Hashem did was He lowered their bandwidth, if you will, by putting clothes on them. And now, now, now they're a little, you know, now He's relating to them. They're on a lower level right now. But now the, 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 the intense energy has been constricted somewhat. Okay? Everyone follow? All right, And so he gives them the clothes not to cut them off not to cut off the light here's the point but as a kindness to them that they could now, we could now better relate to God where we were actually holding because we didn't have the vessels to hold the intense light before it just like blew us out so now God's like okay, you know what that, 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 that's a little too fast let's take a few steps back We'll try it like this, okay? Okay, now we're going to get to a amazing understanding, according to the Spasemes, of circumcision. What's going on with that, okay? Now, um, he says something, Spasemes says something uh, uh, on a historical level, which is quite amazing. Everyone has to understand, you know... Uh, in terms of just popular understanding, we think of um, circumcision of the bris as basically you you cut away this skin, this extra flap, um, and, um, and that's basically circumcision. Okay, that's not exactly right. And by the way, just as a historical note, and I'll throw in a kind of Kabbalistic thought, Adam was created without a foreskin. After the Chet, it says he got a foreskin. In other words, which now we can make sense out of that. Because now that we understand that this skin came on, this covering came on, it does make sense now that he would have it physiologically as well. Not only that, but you want to hear something very cool and without going too far uh, astray. Those, um, those of you who get this reference, fine. If you don't, so be it. If you, know, if you remember the event with Pinchas and Zimri and Cosby you know, all of our neshamas come from Adam, right? Because that's, that was sort of like, he was kind of like the microcosm of all the future neshamas. So it says that Zimri, from which part was he of Adam? Of his foreskin. So, okay. Anyway. Uh, and he gets cut away, so to speak. You know, by Pinchas. Interesting. Okay, so so now, how are we to understand just the simple act of circumcision itself? There's really two parts to it. It's not just cutting away the foreskin. You have to cut away the foreskin, and then you pull back the skin. It's two parts. So there's a cutting, and then a rolling back of the skin that's there, and that, that is the act of circumcision. It's in two parts. Okay? So with that in mind, listen to this. The Sfas says that the generation of the flood, okay, because that was a corrupt generation, was the cutting away. Right? Because those people got kind of cut out. That's the, that's the, that, was a, that was the first step of circumcising the world, if you will. And then the generation of the Tower of Babel were dispersed, they were spread out. That was the peeling back of the remaining skin. And in that way, you see this, like on an amazing sort of historic level, this act of circumcision that God did on the world. An amazing insight, really. Okay, so now let's let's get even deeper. It says, says, there's a passage in um, Eov, Job, from my flesh I see God. Which is one of these um, landmark uh, verses. Sukkim in the Torah. Uh, much can be said on this. Um, it also says that after uh, avram Avinu circumcised himself. That he was sitting at the opening of his tent. Right? And that's how uh, Parshas Vayera opens. He's in the intense heat at the opening of his tent. And that's when he sees the three angels, remember? Thinks that they're strangers and uh, runs to help them. The amazing thing is that not only are they strangers, he, they look like idol-worshiping Arabs, by the way. You know, so, I mean, if you want to know the extent of Abraham's you know, chesed, he's running to help, you know, these three people. Of course, they turn out to be, they, they turn out to be angels, but he didn't know that at the time. But anyway, let's let's focus on this piece of imagery, which is quite amazing. It's the he's sitting at the opening of the tent. So what happens? Remember, we've got this amazing. I don't I, I don't want to call it a play on words because that, that diminishes its 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 kedusha its holiness. But but you have to understand, we have this word these garments of skin that Hashem put on Adam that he put on the world. And remember, it's spelled with an ayin, or. Or, which usually means light. If I were to just use the word or, you would think I'm talking about the Hebrew word for light. But that's spelled with an aleph. But we've got this play. Do you hear how they're kind of like opposites? Or is skin, or is a blockage, or is what covers light. And yet, to the ear, it sounds like the same word. Or with an olive means light. Okay? So, so what happens is, what happens is, Abraham is sitting at the entrance to the tent. At the opening of the tent. Alright, so what is the tent? Now picture this. You have to picture a tent, and then you have to picture an opening to the tent. So on one level, the tent is your body. Okay? That's that which surrounds you. And now there's an opening to the tent. Because Avraham Avinu has been circumcised. The skin, the blockage, the ore with an iron has been cut away. And now there's an opening to the tent. Now the light can come in. And we know that Avraham Avinu goes up dramatically. Dramatically after his circumcision. Not only that, but and in even in, in, in perhaps on an even more cosmic level, this blockage that got put into the world, where we couldn't see eternity, where we only saw like physicality, where we had a, a misplaced understanding of our soul versus our body, this skin, this blockage that was put on the world. If you imagine the whole world around you now, nature around you, as as a tent, all of a sudden. An opening got put into the tent where the Orhaganus, the original light, can now come down back into the world. And that's the elevation of Abraham Avinu because Abraham is now the Jewish people being introduced into the world. Now this light, there's now a, a headquarters, a, a lightning rod, if you will, for this light in the world. It's an opening in the tent for the light to come down. And you can understand why every single circumcision that's performed to this day as such a celebration. Because every time you're cutting, cutting away that skin, that ore with an iron, you're making an opening for the ore with an olive, for the light to come down, for more light to come down into the world. Less blockage in the world. More windows. Okay. So now I want, to touch on, I want to touch on this idea of this snake coming to us and how it presents itself to us so that we have tools to deal with temptation when it, when it approaches us. So in general, we understand it as um, that if we want a piece of imagery it would be the snake is obviously the classic piece of imagery. Now, interestingly, the Pirkei de Rav brings down another image, which is that the Samech Men, Somol, the, this, the Sutton, if you will, it says, came riding on a snake like a camel. And I think maybe like a camel is because, you know, like a snake kind of curls up and kind of travels, makes kind of humps as it goes along. Maybe that's the uh, idea. I don't know. But it says that the Samach Mem came riding on a snake, on the snake like a camel, when it came to confront Chava, I guess. So how are we to understand what are the rabbis trying to teach us with that additional piece of imagery? What is that adding that the snake alone didn't didn't communicate to us? Temptation is temptation, right? So why are you kind of rejiggering the bit of imagery there? Why? Obviously to teach us something. So let me share with you my understanding of it. Classically speaking, when we talk about a, a horse and a rider in Torah, the... What it's talking about is that the rider is able to control the horse. Um, that's what it means. That's the role of the rider. The rider controls the horse. So, with that in mind, when it says that the sutton, that the, the samach mem, came riding on the snake. To confront us. It was a very, very powerful challenge. You see. If it's just me against the snake. Then that's kind of like. Okay. That's kind of like a level playing field. Hopefully I'll be victorious. One never knows. But you try. But. When the Samich men. When the Sutton comes. Riding on the snake it sends us, it's like psychological warfare. It says, don't you see, I'm the rider. I'm already in control. I'm already calling the shots. You think that you can resist me? You think that you have a chance against me? I'm the rider. I'm the one who is in control, not you. You don't have a chance against me. Don't even bother with the struggle. I've already won. Don't you see? I'm the rider, not you. So, boy, talk about a, you know, talk about a first strike. You know what I mean? Where you just kind of come in and you obliterate the entire other team's army before the war even starts. The idea that it comes as the rider, then what chance do I have? I can't battle this temptation, whatever it is. I've already lost. So, but that's just psychological warfare. That's just the, that's just the deviousness of the Sahara. Of the that's all it is. So, I remember reading one time um, in the Tanya. I loved it so much. Remember, there's only one power in the world. It's only Hashem. And evil works for God. Evil works for God. If you don't understand that evil works for God then that means you think there's two powers in the world. There's good and evil. And and they battle each other. That's not Judaism. That's certainly not our religion. So what does it mean when temptation comes to a person? It says when the Satan comes to a person, if you say no to it, it jumps up and dances. That's what it wants. You say yes to it, it tears its clothes and cries. it's, It's there to tempt you because for Many reasons, but but it's not there to. It doesn't celebrate if you agree with it. The opposite, because it works for God. Because there is only one power. So, with that in mind, the Tanya says that 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 the angel itself, or the Yetzirah itself, when it comes and it tells you something, you have to understand. That it doesn't even believe it, <laughs> so when you hear a thought that's like very like you know ah, frightening like, "How did I think that, or where's that coming from?" or "Oh no, right? what you say back to it is, "You don't even believe it. Why should I and I'll tell you that's a that's good, it works, it actually works <laughs> um, okay, so so there's um there's something that I just want to close with It's from this uh, this past week 's parsha in Buhu Kosai. Um, it's talking about of all things, fruit trees, very relevant and uh there's a very interesting language that I'd just like to point out. Um, you know, the good news is there is a tree that, uh, that we still haven't eaten from yet. It's called the Tree of Life. Um, and, and we will eat from the Tree of Life again. Uh, you see... I mentioned earlier, the snake says to Chava, if you eat from this fruit, your eyes will be opened. Very interesting. We we're discussing the letter Ayin. Or with the letter Ayin, meaning skin, meaning a blockage. Ayin is not just a Hebrew letter, but it's actually a Hebrew word, which means eye. And one of the main things that we have to do is we have to guard our eyes. Because I, Ayin is the letter 70 which really stands for the 70 nations, which really stands for this multiplicity in this world of what one can perceive as separate powers. In other words, 70 in a way is the opposite of 1. It's so intriguing that Ayin is, so, is silent, and the other silent letter is Aleph, which is Gematria 1. In other words, it's like this insidious little thing that comes in. that is this other silent letter that's sort of like you know, disguises itself and sort of like steps in front of the olive. <laughs> you know, and it does so very silently. You know, without a little trace, you know. But, you know, in different traditions, the ayin actually is, is actually, has a little sound to it. Like, I think uh, the, 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 the the Yemeni Jews know how to pronounce the ayin. It's like a little guttural sound, actually. But, um, so it tells you if you, if you, say it? That's how you say it. So, 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 uh, if uh, if you if if we refine ourselves, then we can we can hear the we can hear the iron stepping in front of the olive, you know. But it's has all but significantly; it's almost been completely lost from the world, even the Torah world. So, so, so when the when the snake says, "Your eyes will be opened." It's so interesting, because the I is is that, um, is that transition from objectivity to subjectivity. From an understanding of how things actually really are, that's objectivity, to subjectivity, the way I see it with my eye. So it's actually a, a lowering of levels, and we said that this is very consistent, this notion that that when you first learn about this, you say, well, wait a second, why not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Aren't we pro-knowledge? Certainly. But that was actually a downgrading, because the Rambam explains that before we ate from the knowledge of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that what existed was a clarity of truth and falsehood. In other words, it was like black and white. And that Good and evil, these are actually relative terms, because what's good for you might not be good for me. What's bad for me might not be bad for you. All of a sudden it becomes mixed together. And so it's very, very exact when the, when the snake says your eyes will be opened. In other words, you, it's, not, it's not an increase of in knowledge. It's all of a sudden you're going to see things through the iron. Through the iron. And of course the iron of ore through the, through the skin that results. Although I guess we he was a little ahead of us. We didn't, quite, <laughs> we didn't quite get the implications of it all. But anyway, that aside, the Rambam says that we're going to eat from the tree of life. And we know that the Torah is called Chayim, the tree of life. One can eat from the tree of life by learning Torah, but that will actually do it physically, that there's actually and eating of the fruit of the tree of life that is going to take place. Now, if you look... What kind of fruit is this? Well, there are different opinions. Some say it's the esrug, and other people say it's wine, uh, the grape, rather, and uh, other people say it's a fig, other people say it's wheat. These are all different, um, and each one is a different um, road to understanding a different level Of uh, of 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 what actually took place, but let me just uh, let me just zero in on this pasuk. It says, um, "Okay, I'm I'm just." uh, It's it's actually the very first parak, the very first pasuk, very first verse. Actually, the second verse in Buhu Kosai. So it's um, chapter twenty six, verse four. Oh, those are two good numbers there. Okay, so listen to this. I'll I'll read into it. If you will follow my decrees and observe my commandments and perform them, right, which we didn't do in the Garden of Eden, okay? Now listen how interesting this is. Then I will provide your rains in their time and the land will give its produce. You ready for this? And the tree of the field will give its fruit. So I would like to say, what tree of the field? It says, doesn't say, it doesn't say them. not in the plural. It says eats. It's talking about, it's in the singular. It says, the tree of the field will give its fruit. So I would like to suggest that that's a hint of the tree of life. That the tree of life, the fruit of the tree of the life, of the, the fruit of the tree of life still awaits us. And if we follow Hashem's Ways that it will give its fruit, that we'll be able to get back to this place and to complete this massive, glorious journey that we've been on since the Garden of Eden and uh, be able to celebrate with Hashem with the dance of the tzaddikim. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Have a great week.